Well, uh, good morning. Let me add my welcome to that of Will's. Um, it's a privilege to be opening up this series in 1 Peter this morning. My name's Tim. I'm one of the members here at Crescent Church. Uh, I'm less excited about the fact I'm still stuck in quarantine, uh, having to record this from my living room. Uh, as good a job as the techies have done in keeping us all connected, um, we are sad not to be meeting together uh, just yet. Uh, but we trust God that as we turn uh, to this little book of Peter uh, that Sharon has read to us, that we will hear his voice uh, and it will strengthen and encourage us in these strange and difficult times. But uh, I want to ask the question as we start, what do you do when you feel like it's too much? You want to pack it all in. Maybe particularly the life of faith, following Jesus. You, you feel like maybe it would just be easier if I could forget it and go back to an easier time. That is how some of Peter's first recipients who received this letter would have felt. There was pressure, there was struggle. And in fact, the challenge for these Christians was that grace and, 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 and starting to follow Jesus Christ, although a source of great joy and comfort, had actually made their lives a lot more difficult. The suffering and the, the pressure that they're experiences, experiencing is, is evident. Peter mentions it multiple times in each chapter, and, and we'll see it as we go through. In chapter 1, various trials. Chapter 2, unjust suffering. Chapter 3, suffering for what is right. Chapter 4, he talks about painful trials and, and, and being insulted for the name of Jesus. And in chapter 5, he talks about suffering across the whole church. And although it may not yet at this time, when Peter was writing, have been in the most extreme forms of martyrdom. They're being marginalized and, and relationships have become, certain relationships have become strained. The threat of danger is growing and no doubt some were asking, is it worth it? How do we keep going? Can following Jesus be worth it if it's so hard? And if it is right and true, that Jesus is Lord and Christ, then how come we're in such a minority and so many people in the mainstream just seem to reject it? It's into that context uh, and to these Christians that Peter writes this letter to give understanding and strength and hope. Now, as we embark on this study over the next eight weeks, we have to be honest, we're in a society that is maybe a lot more comfortable with Christianity, where we have remarkable freedom and security although temporarily in your own home and garden, of course. But millions of our brothers and sisters who are scattered in other countries around the world are in fear of their jobs, their homes, their, their lives even, because they have chosen to follow Christ. And in fact, COVID-19, if anything, has maybe given some of us a, a taste of, of maybe just something of what that's like to, 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 to live with restrictions and to live under threat and even daily danger. But by and large for us, believing in the Lord Jesus does not put our lives in jeopardy or risk our homes and freedom. But that said, you'd be naive not to notice that there has been an increasing pressure put on Christianity in our contemporary society. Over the last 20 years or so since 9-11, it's become more popular to think to have a strong belief, especially a religious belief, is in fact dangerous. And it's becoming more and more the consensus, it seems, that Christianity Christians are intolerant, small-minded. Traditional convictions on the biblical definition of marriage or the value of the unborn life are seen as backward and unwelcomed in a modern society, a hindrance to progress. 
And surely if things broadly continue as they are, then things will get harder. Pressure is going to rise. How will it be in five, ten years, or even for our children? And how then will we cope? That is what First Peter is going to help us with. And in the, in the letter, Peter's also going to show us that the challenges that we face, they aren't just the pressure from the outside, but they go hand in hand with the, the temptation then that's in here. Often the heart of the problem is still the problem of the heart. And when it's hard and the pressure comes, am I willing to suffer the consequences of following Jesus? It is often the case, isn't it, that our, our sin is, is motiva- motivated by a, a desire to avoid suffering or, or loss. It's much easier to lean into those unfulfilled desires, to take the opportunity for glory and gratification now, than look to the glory and honour that's being kept in eternity future. I want it. I, I won't live without it. I can't suffer the loss. But there is a cost to being different. Loyalty to Jesus Christ will create differences that will be noticeable in our values, in our families, and Peter says even at times in our fashion sense. And it will, in some cases, be uncomfortable and isolating. We all know now (laughs) how uncomfortable it can be when we're isolated. Are we ready for the challenge of unpopularity? And when we feel the the tug of temptation to retreat and throw in the towel, are we prepared to stand firm when we feel that increasing pressure and temptation? To be God's people in a society that is not his, to belong to Jesus Christ when the devil is seeking to have you and devour you, that is why we desperately need one Peter. In this letter, he will equip us to stand firm Just before we dive into the first 12 verses of chapter 1, it is good, isn't it, that God has given us Peter to teach us this. We learn so much about the man in scripture. Uh, We learned about him last week in John chapter 21. Who knows better the ups and downs of following Jesus than Peter? Imagine trying to prepare a younger Peter for the path of suffering as he is doing to us now. Remember when he rejected Jesus after his own prophecy about the Messiah's suffering. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Peter used to think with satanic motivation how far he has come now as he sits down to pen this letter. An old Christian elder in Rome. And he could see the the way the winds of society and politics were, were blowing. And he wants to strengthen the family of God as they come on behind him that we may stand firm in the true grace of God. So let's jump into this book. Let's jump into these initial 12 verses this morning. I'm going to divide these 12 verses into three. Uh, Verses one to five, we're going to look at God's saving work in the past and for our future. We belong to God and have a sure and glorious hope. Then six to nine, God's saving work in our present. Current temporary suffering refines our faith for eternity. And then finally and briefly, verses 10 to 12, the word of God assures us that this is God's salvation plan. So firstly then, verses 1 to 5, if you have a Bible, please do keep it open. We belong to God and have a sure and glorious hope. 
Well, Peter wastes no time in getting to work. And in his initial greeting, he first and foremost wants us to know who precisely we are. And he sets about strengthening us to stand firm. He says, we are the exiles of the dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. First and foremost, a Christian's identity is grounded in the work of God, Father, Spirit and Son. Did you notice that all three are mentioned, all three persons of the Godhead working towards one unified goal for you? That we would belong to him. We are God's people. The initiative, first and foremost, was God's. It was his eternal plan that has called us to belong to the church. And even before we were aware of it, our loving Heavenly Father has purposefully planned our salvation. The Spirit is on site within us, teaching us truth and convicting us of God's love and setting us apart for God. And the Son, just like in the Old Testament, the people were sprinkled with the blood of animals so much greater we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ to be brought into union and fellowship and relationship with God that is who you are through the work of the trinity father spirit son we belong to God we are his so Paul uh, Peter says in terms of this world he calls us exiles Wherever we are in this world, wherever we have an address, we are foreigners. You might be born and bred Northern Ireland, but this isn't your home home. Of course we don't belong here if we belong to God. The fact, Peter lists the language used of the Jewish nation that's been scattered from Palestine across the Greco-Roman Empire. And says, we too, the New Testament people of God, it's as if we've been scattered far from our home, not a, a, a land in Palestine, but from our heavenly home. So we're the elect exiles of the dispersion. So sure, you have a, an address in Galatia or Bithynia, he says, or you're locked down in Tate's Avenue or Ballyhackamore. But actually, your home is with God. We're just passing through. We're here for a short while. And if we don't belong here, then we might not have the full status that the locals have. We might not get the full rights and privileges, but that's okay because we're exiles and heaven is our home. Our identity is in God, Father, Spirit, Son, and his salvation. And it's this profound fact that Peter puts right here in the greeting that will be the foundation for everything he's going to teach and expound in this book. First and foremost, we must know who we are. We belong to God. And after his initial greeting, then how will Peter start this letter? Verses 3 through 12. In the original, it was actually one very long sentence. And uh, perhaps if it was me and I was writing a letter to those who were under pressure and really finding things quite difficult, then I'd maybe try and start with um, some empathy. Uh, I am honestly working on that. Uh, but, you know, you guys are feeling the pressure. Yeah, me too. Um, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I know it's hard too. And I, 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 you feel like that. I feel like that too. It's nice to be in this together. Or, or maybe even a, a prayer for their protection 
or security or instruction or encouragement and exhortation. And yes, that will come. He will give us clear exhortations. But first and foremost, that's not where he starts. He starts in verse number three with this huge sentence of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's not really telling us to do anything. He's expounding the greatness of God and he's inviting us to join him in praise. Praise be to God. This is what he has done. This is what he is doing. This is what he will most surely do. Just think about that for a moment. How healthy it is for us to lift our hearts and our minds from the circumstances and consider the blessedness, the wonder of the God to whom we belong. I know in the midst of difficulty, it can sound like jargon or for some of us, it can sound like abstract words or familiar religious language. But Peter knows that that if we're going to be able to cope, if we're going to be able to flourish, then we have to deeply consider the wonder of God's work in our salvation. And so he starts in verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I wonder if you can think back to what changed for you when you were born. What an experience that was. It's a shame we can't remember. But you went from being this bump that was hidden from the world to being this baby and you were named Margaret or we Sammy and and you received an identity and a a personality and a a nationality and, and all of this potential just came into life. And Peter says that's the, the picture that, that the best explains the momentous shift that has happened in your life again a second time. Due to God's incredible mercy, you, even you, have had a second birth and had that experience all over again. A new name, a new identity, a new citizenship, new potential, new heavenly life. And this new birth has brought us into two things, a living hope and a future inheritance in verse number four. Our new hope is living because it's a hope in a living person, Jesus Christ. And that means our confidence in the future is solid because it's grounded in the historic reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter says. So our future expectation is guaranteed by what has already happened. So Jesus doesn't just saddle up beside us and say, hope in me. Let's stick at this together. I'm pretty sure I can handle what comes. No. He points to the empty grave, the neatly folded grave clothes and says, look here. I have defeated death. I have overcome. Now put your hand in mine and hope in me. What a living hope we have in Jesus. It doesn't take much to make us feel hopeless, does it? How often over the last month have we felt helpless, victim and facing forces outside of ourselves? How often have you read the headlines or heard the horror stories or just felt out of control? Or maybe for you it's a myriad of other things that isn't in the news and not many people know about. How can we stand firm? How can we not lose our way? Well, Peter wants us to grasp that whatever the twists and turns along the way, we have been born again and we belong to the new world. 
brought by the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And in his resurrection, we see not only that death is not the end, but we see that all things are subject to him. So when other forces flash their power and we fall victim or are impacted by them, we know that our hope alone is in him, the living Lord of all. Incidentally, in chapter 3, Peter's going to say that we have to be ready to talk about this. Because if we live life like we have a living hope in a resurrected Jesus Christ, then people are going to have questions for us. So praise God, firstly, for our living hope, but secondly, for our eternal inheritance. In verse number four, Peter again echoes the great themes of the Old Testament people of God who were brought out of Egypt and brought into inheritance in the promised land. We too, with this new life, have been set on course for an inheritance. But unlike the promised land, which the prophets declared that the people of of Israel had defiled by their sin, which was ravaged by the, the world's superpowers for years and ultimately taken from them, God has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I find great comfort in thinking through this lovely description, imperishable. If there's ever a time that we don't have to be reminded, the fragility, the fragility and the uncertainty of our future, investments, pensions, whatever it might be, it's now. But what God is keeping for you is completely unaffected by COVID-19's impact on the global economy. It's completely impervious to destruction imperishable it's undefiled i wonder if you've ever been confronted by your ability to spoil things maybe you could ask someone in your lockdown house i don't know maybe it's your temper your selfishness your childishness or paranoia but our eternal inheritance is even safe from us messing it up we have an inheritance that we cannot contaminate or spoil It's undefiled and it's unfading. The relentless march of time may make the elderly more vulnerable here and now, but the passing of time will not ravage or decay or damage the inheritance that God has kept firm for us. It doesn't fade. Our better eternal inheritance is being kept in heaven, Peter says in verse number four. And that seems like a good spot for safekeeping. But that's not enough. We also, as we travel from this moment of our new birth to the living hope and inheritance that we have, we're being continually guarded by God's power, Peter says in verse number five. It's one thing to be the royal heir to the throne and have this great and wondrous future. But it's quite another if that puts a target on your back or it invites enemies, and you never make it to that inheritance. But God did not go to all this effort to let us slip on the way or lose our way on the journey. He gives us the full royal protection detail as we are guarded all the way to the end. When the full and final salvation of all things will be revealed, we will be standing in faith by Christ. Which leads us to our our second point, God's saving work in the present, verses 6 to 9. 
The point here is that current temporary suffering refines our faith for eternal value. So far, it's, it's been good news. It's been something that God's done in the past, things that he will surely do in the future. We have much to rejoice in and continue in praise. But how do we make sense of the now? The huge variety of trials and challenges. Is God's salvation on pause until he comes again? What is he doing now? Well, Peter says in verse number six, in the here and now, it may be necessary that we experience various trials. But in the hands of God, these two are serving to build into our glorious future. And in order to explain how this can be, Peter uses the picture of a goldsmith working to purify a lump of gold ore. As he starts to, to purify it, he, he takes this big chunk of, chunk of gear and puts it into the, the crucible and puts it into the heart of the flame. And as the heat intensifies over time, the scum and the composite materials that are polluting the, the, the pure gold in the ore are, are risen to the top and separated and removed. And over time, ultimately, what's left can, can actually seem quite small. So much of it perishes in the process. But the result is far more valuable because you're left with the genuine, precious metal. We are very ore-like. We have inbuilt weaknesses. We have contaminants, imperfections, and our faith in particular can be a real composite mixture of pure gold and dross and scum. Often it's, it's robbed of its beauty, even its strength, because of the imperfections and the inevitable junk that is mixed up with it and parades as faith. God cannot be faithful to us and leave our faith as a drossy ore. Peter says, there will be, there may be times when you feel the flame. It will hurt. It can be severe. But as the divine goldsmith watches the fire, not a single gram of pure gold will be damaged. He will let the fire burn to rescue our faith from the junk that it's mixed with. How real was this for Peter? Many things went off the rails for Peter when he felt the, pre the, the pressure the night of Jesus' crucifixion. His boldness and his zeal evaporated. His honesty and reputation gone. These hairline cracks became gaping holes. And shortly after, he must have thought, what tatters my faith is in. But his faith did not fail. Jesus said only hours before he denied him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. No, his faith didn't fail. But surely that night made Peter more aware of the weaknesses that were under the bonnet of his faith. As Peter reflected, he was forced to ask, how much of my faith previously was mixed up with my natural boldness and my brass personality? How much of my vocal support for the Lord was a desire to lead and be the big voice in the room? How quickly that evaporated when he was on his own. But he was undergoing the work of the divine goldsmith, purifying and refining his faith. And so too with us. God will take us to places we do not want to go. Because he knows our faith is valuable and worth it. 
and how much of our faith has impurities and weaknesses. How much of our Christianity is a, a response to social pressure or the desire to be in a certain crowd? How much of it is a desire to please our parents? How much of it is a package deal? We'll have it as long as these other conditions are, are attached. So it may hurt when you feel the chisel. But that's not a moment to despair or retreat. It will take some reprogramming. We instinctively might question God, but we must know that it is evidence that God is taking our faith seriously and that he can and he will transform us so that we're equipped and we're ready to share the full glory that awaits when Jesus Christ comes again. So Peter reminds us that although we haven't yet seen Jesus, we love him and we believe him, knowing that this is a blessing and it adds to our future glory. God is making you a person fit for a grand, glorious inheritance. And he is working to save and redeem the gold of your life. And what is most valuable, what is most vital, is that we are joined to Christ by faith for eternity. The Lord hasn't come yet. He hasn't come back yet. And one of the reasons for this is this critical step in our salvation. We are learning to love and trust even when we're exiles, even when we're far from home and in a hostile world. So there will be moments of grief, moments of loss, moments of pain and weakness. But when we grasp what God is doing to build into our salvation, there is a deep fountain of joy. And when Jesus does appear in power and majesty, we'll be out the other end. And what we will receive, the outcome of this process, is precious beyond measure. So Peter, in his word of praise, helps us understand not only what God has done, what waits for us in the future, but what God is doing. God will take us to places we don't want to go. But the present is still part of his salvation. And this is true grace for us to stand firm in. Finally, and briefly, uh, verse 10, 11 and 12. The word of God assures us that this is God's salvation. Peter knows that at times it might seem harder for those of us who weren't there with Jesus. We're tempted to say, you know, Peter, it's easier for you to stay steadfast. You had so much time with Jesus. Although, to be fair, he still got it so wrong, even when he was with him. It was only moments after he had had the vision of Jesus Christ transfigured on the mount that the Lord had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter must have thought back, how dumb. Oh, back in those days, in the midst of the actual experience, that I thought... I could tell Jesus what was the best plan for him. Peter knows that actually now we have something more reliable than experience. In order to be assured of God's salvation plan, we have the written word of God. He refers to in verse number 10. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, clearly set out what grace would look like. And now the message of the gospel has come and we can start to see more fully all the preparation and promises and prophecies of God and how they've been working together over centuries across the globe through human history to bring us to this point where Jesus the Christ would come and he would suffer. 
and then enter into his glory. That was always the plan and the pattern of God's salvation. So suffering is not a a thing going wrong, but it's exactly what was predicted in God's plan. God was not out of control when Jesus hung battered and bruised on the cross. That wasn't off script. So we can be sure that he's not out of control in the midst of our seemingly haphazard and painful experiences as we go through this journey. As I close, this uh, quote of Tim Keller's popped up in my social media last night. Christianity teaches that contra to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can currently imagine. There is a purpose to it. It can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God, into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. So we belong to God and have a secure and glorious future. Current temporal suffering develops our faith for eternal value. And the word of God assures us that this is God's salvation. This is the plan. Let's just take a moment to conclude our time with prayer. Father, we praise you for your greatness, for the great plan of salvation, what you have done, what you will do, what you are doing even now in the midst of our circumstances and experiences. We pray that the the truth packed in this small letter as we consider and study it over the next number of weeks would radically shape the way we go about our daily lives. May we be more faithful in following Jesus, the ultimate exile, even in his rejection, that we may one day enjoy joining him in his abundant glory. So we pray that your word would do its good work in us as we commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.